Welcome to Filmmaker's Compass Podcast, a show where we talk about movies and, well, apparently now streaming TV shows. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're if you're joining us, if you're new to the show, yeah, we're talking about all kinds of media here. It's actually pretty great. I'm D-Man, joined by CP. How you doing? I am great, dude. How are you? Fantastic today. One of the things I want to bring up is uh, our Rings of Power discussions have definitely continued in my personal life while I'm either out at dinner, out to the bar, or even on the phone with other people. So I do appreciate everybody keeping that conversation going. A couple people have definitely kept that discussion alive. So we're, we're we are going to return with the uh, finale of Rings of Power season one and a, a future discussion about, you know, how season one played out, you know, what do we think for the future of the show, but that will be tabled for approximately another four weeks. So <laughs> we will come back with more Rings of Power later. So I appreciate you guys though, enjoying the conversation. I do want to start out with some shout outs on this episode. So first up, I have to give a big shout out to uh, my wife. Stephanie Mungia Garbeziak. And that is because she started listening to the podcast. Wow. We've been doing this for almost 60 episodes <laughs> and she is plugged in and she said she's actually really enjoying the show. She said she really likes our uh, movie remake time segment. So it's a little uh, constructive feedback right there. I'm just so happy you're listening to me, babe. Like my voice doesn't annoy you to the degree that you want it on in the background. That just well, makes me such a proud husband. What blows my mind about that is what we talk about on this podcast is exactly what you talk about in your personal life. I'm just shocked that she's like, you know what? I'm going to listen to D-Man talk about this even more. I Good love job, you. Steph. Yeah, I love you so much. She, actually she, told me she is just, a keeper. Check this out. She told me she just listened to our episode on The Big Sleep. Like, she has Old never school. seen that movie. And she was like, it was interesting. I actually enjoyed your conversation on that. So I was like, wow, that's awesome. So got ourselves a new listener. So I'm very happy about that. Next up, I do have to give a shout out. It was mentioned to me a couple weeks back, and I meant to do an official shout out. Mike Soto noticed while we were uh, sharing clips of the show that uh, this microphone here is still my microphone of choice. If anybody knows me, they know I've been podcasting for, you know, a couple of years. And this microphone, it's a... Uh, Yeti Blue and was a gift from Mike Soto to the IBC podcast in the past. And I just want to give a big shout out because I have taken this as a great tool of the trade and I am now using it in our podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Yeti. And more importantly, thank you, Mike Soto, for your unofficial sponsorship of the Filmmakers <laughs> podcast. Thank you. Man. Yeah, right. We'll give his company a little uh, blast. Diamond Pure <laughs> Water Filtration. If you need any water filtration services, go to Diamond Pure Water Filtration, Southern California. Mike, you, you set the boundaries on where you're going to go. I'll leave it there. <laughs> So next up is actually a shout out to Anthony Torres. And that's because we ended up going out to Lazy Dog's restaurant the other night, grabbed some chicken wings and a beer. We sat and talked about the Rings of Power for, I want to say about an hour. It was fantastic because as I've mentioned many times, a lot of what we talk about on the show is actually just what I talk about in uh, <laughs> in real life. They did drop episode five and Anthony, I expect our, our good conversations to continue, hopefully weekly. Maybe we'll make this meetup regular, but thanks. Thanks for checking out and keeping the conversation going. And then I just got to give a big shout out to uh, all of our new followers. I know CP, you're actually really good, especially on Twitter, of acknowledging everybody that is joining the Filmmakers Compass following. But to anybody that's listening, if you're a new follower, we are very thankful and glad that you're here and glad that you're tuning in. So thanks a lot. I have two shout outs and I actually got a little bit of hate based on our last couple episodes. So the first one is to Selena. I have to apologize. She called me out for a comment I made during last episode 
episode for wearing my Ghostbusters shirt. And I said it was almost the season. And she corrected me and said, no, it is always the season for Ghostbusters. And you are absolutely right, <laughs> Selena. I was simply trying to draw attention to the fact that it's almost Halloween season. And you have to watch Ghostbusters during Halloween. I do it's every Halloween. Like you have to. Other person who I need to give a shout out to is, so this is actually a really cool story. Side note. So this is my friend, Lindsay, who her claim to fame is she actually beat the shit out of one of the Girl Scouts in the movie <laughs> Dodgeball. She's oh, actually that's amazing. Maybe we'll have her come on the show and talk about Dodgeball because that's a fun movie. That would be uh, awesome. Lindsay, so shout out to you. I apologize. She called me out and said, we can't be friends anymore because I said that I did not like the Harry Potter movies. Just the way it goes. That was, I think, two episodes ago where we were talking about the movie experience, the theatrical experience. I honestly don't remember you saying you didn't. You said you didn't like them as much as Lord of the Rings. If Am I correct? Or do you just want to go ahead and I think I said it? I didn't like them. Okay. Well, I mean, that you that's you thinking about what you said. What is your actual <laughs> thought? So the point <laughs> is this. I will make this deal with you, Lindsay, and with our listeners. If you come through here, I know you don't like Lord of the Rings. I don't especially like Harry Potter. So I'll make a deal. You watch all... All three of the original trilogy, Lord of the Rings movies, extended edition, I will in turn watch all eight Harry Potter movies, and then we can I discuss. I would like to volunteer myself to watch all of those with you. Uh, <laughs> I love them all. That's amazing. That sounds like such a great time. Lindsay, you let me know if that deal is going to work. Yeah, maybe I'll change my mind on the Harry Potter films. So. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody, for all your feedback and comments and discussion. Really appreciate it. So I'm going to throw it over to you, CP, on our first discussion topic today. What are we what are we getting into? Got some heavy stuff, bro. <laughs> we got to talk about Dragon Ball Z slash Super. Okay. I still call it Dragon Ball Z. I know technically now we're on Super, but come on. We're old school. And come on, Dragon Ball Z is still the best out of all four Dragon Ball series. And, you know, that, not sorry for fact. saying it. That's a fact. That's a fact. So, For anybody that's actually listening, though, can you explain what it is that you have in your hand and where that comes from? So when I went to Comic-Con, they were plugging so much the new Dragon Ball Super superhero movie that they gave everybody fans. And it was actually really nice because, as you know, that convention hall gets really hot sometimes. They gave the so. fans fans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well played. <laughs> I also like your, uh, you, I, if, you know, again, if you're, if you're just listening behind CP, he has a bookshelf that often features either video cassette tapes and, in this case, action figures, and they are from Dragon Ball. Z. So those are not super figures. I no. Even I know that. No, no, no. They're the OG ones. Here's the deal. The reason why I wanted to talk about super is Dragon Ball Super, I read an article, just surpassed $90 million in the box office. Wow. And I think that's, that's awesome. pretty cool. I wanted to do a little digging. And so I went back and the first major theatrical movie released that kind of started this getting Dragon Ball Z movies back into the theaters was Dragon Ball Battle of the Gods from 2013. It only okay. made $2.5 million dollars domestically but it wow, made 47 million internationally yeah that's yeah. a huge disparity yeah then in 2015 they released resurrection f movie about freezer returning and that made five million dollars domestically for a total of 61 million worldwide in 2018 dragon ball super broly came out and this one actually made 30 million dollars domestically for a worldwide gross of 115 million dollars okay dragon ball super superhero came out in august it has so far made 35 million dollars domestically for a total of 90 million now remember the way that these dragon ball z movies are released it's not quite the same as mainstream cinema because the whole crunchy roll thing it just doesn't have the box office pull so it's rolled out over a longer period of time so i'm just blown away that it's already made 90 million 
I think it's on track to probably grow somewhere around 120, 150 million, which I think is insane for what used to be straight to VHS slash DVD animated features. And there's a little room for context here. You know, we look at something like in the international box office numbers of something like Top Gun, right? It went over a billion or, you know, it's like, I think the sixth highest grossing movie of all time, right? With context, I think Dragon Ball being one of the most popular anime brands, you know, I if I'm not mistaken, I think 90 million is is the most ever made by an anime film in theaters. Am I wrong? I don't know for sure, but I would expect it something like that. I mean, yeah. I did see a number that I think it's the highest Dragon Ball Super so far is like the most maybe successful animated maybe film ever released in America, which... Okay, maybe it's America. But I mean, you know, obviously it's competing against the likes of things like, you know, the Pokemon movie, some of that stuff that did well in its time. You know, it's crazy how popular Pokemon was. That was awesome. Still is. Do you have your Pokemon cards? Of course I do. Oh my God. I think we talked about it on this show. My mom threw out my Star Wars action figures and she threw out my Pokemon cards. Well, that sucks. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but more importantly, dude, now we can't battle Pokemon. I know. Shout out to everyone else who wants to. Like, (laughs) my house, I'll bust out the cards again. But I mean, Dragon Ball is one of the most popular anime brands. It's probably the most recognizable, especially here in America because of the Toonami run Dragon Ball Z had in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah. So it's actually really impressive to me, the longevity of that brand. Dragon Ball is, you know, it's a a shonen series. There's a lot of fighting. For some reason, they're able to use certain tropes that have worked for so long. They keep refreshing them in a way that is just still so entertaining. Like I watched Dragon Ball Super Broly the other day with my roommate, Andres, shout out. We really enjoyed it. Like the Final battle was epic. It was awesome. And I mean, this is, you know, I'm a DBZ fan dating back to like 1997. I don't know how mm-hmm. old I was in 10. Oh yeah, I do. I was born in 87. I was 10. <laughs> Some fast math. But yeah, even, even Dragon Ball Super Broly was, was pretty great. And I even loved, if you pay attention to that movie, the animation was really cool because some of the early stuff with like the planet Vegeta and all that, it has kind of a throwback animation style to older DBZ. And then when they get into the mega fight at the end, they're using a lot of new animation, moving cameras, and all kinds of cool stuff. It's a lot of fun, but I have not seen Dragon Ball Super Superhero. That is on my list. Now, I do want to ask you, we had this conversation a few weeks ago. Is this a movie that you would recommend I see in theaters or would it be perfectly fine watching it on, you know, streaming? I enjoyed seeing it in the theater and I think a success in these Dragon Ball Z movies in theaters, which by the way, each time it makes more money, they then expand it out to more theaters the next film's released in. So it's kind of natural that it keeps growing in success. But for me as a Dragon Ball Z fan, the thing that I loved is going to the theater and hanging out with a bunch of other Dragon Ball Z nerds for two hours because it's a culture that doesn't really get opportunities to come together as fans. That's a good point. Kind of the whole like find your tribe vibe. Yeah. And I I mean, that used to be me, particularly, you know, dressing up in Jedi costumes and going to prequel releases, you know, felt like you were home, you know? And I think that what's really cool about the success of Dragon Ball Z Super Superhero is it shows that Dragon Ball Z is not a subculture. This is totally mm, now part of mainstream pop culture. I mean, think about it. When we were kids, Dragon Ball had already come out. We were kind of experiencing Dragon Ball Z as it was rolled out in the first run in in America. Uh, since that time, they had GT and now Super. So we've almost had two-ish, maybe a little more than that, generations of Dragon Ball fans. And this is just proof that this is not a subculture. And hopefully Crunchyroll and Funimation are going to take that back and say, cool, there is a huge market for this content so we can start and continue releasing these things theatrically. And then I got to ask what is your uh what's your review on dragon ball super superhero i loved it i love dragon ball super superhero i saw it twice felt like old school dragon ball z 
and it was a lot of fun. I also love the fact that it was a movie where the Goku Vegeta storyline was much more of a secondary plot thread. And this one really focused on the Gohan Piccolo relationship. Like that's the formation of Dragon Ball Z right there. So it was fun for them to go back and revisit that. Awesome. Something else that just released is the new Star Wars Disney Plus series, Andor. I actually watched the first three episodes and we have a problem. Yeah, And that do. is that you do not watch Disney Star Wars. So we actually cannot have a discussion about this new show the same way we were with Rings of Power because you... Uh... I, I don't watch crap. You're absolutely right. I refuse oh, to. you went all the way there. Well, here, here's the thing. For a little bit of context, you know, everybody knows that Disney bought Star Wars for $4 billion from George Lucas and then basically said, we don't want your input and they erased kind of the original Legends canon in favor of creating their own. So what we ended up with was a sequel trilogy for the Skywalker saga and apparently, uh, you know, two... I, I just need to interject. A sequel trilogy that we didn't need. Okay, continue. <laughs> yeah, two kind of solo films. One of them actually titled Solo and then a whole slew of series. Now, of all of that, you being somewhat vocal to me but not yet on the podcast, have you actually watched any Disney Star Wars because you're a huge Star Wars fan. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And uh, yes, I have. I have given portions of it chances. I've actually watched Mandalorian, the entire show. Okay. I don't know if we're going to continue uh, consider Clone Wars Disney Star Wars because I think they what I think Disney Star Wars released like the final season. Yeah. I obviously watched all of Clone Wars. But overall, I don't like to watch crap. Now, where did Disney lose you? Was it when they purchased it and George Lucas, he's like, you know, I'm out and you're like, fine. If George isn't a part of it, then I'm out too. Or was it when they didn't follow, like I think we had mentioned last week, you know, the Grand Admiral Thrawn, the Timothy Zahn books and all this. Because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the unique things about Star Wars as a fandom was that they were actually pretty lax going to like late 80s, 90s with giving other people chances to contribute to the overall Star Wars universe. They were actually, I guess they had an entire division at Lucasfilm, I didn't know this, that literally just focused on continuity. They tried yeah. to make sure that all of this new canon fit somewhere. You know, what yeah. time, what characters are in it, did everything line up, would they actually be there at that time? Kind of crazy when you yeah. get into the giant, you know, sprawling Star Wars universe of like the 90s and 2000s, because Lucasfilm did actually, you know, even not necessarily part of canon, but they even let people make fan films and all kinds of cool stuff. And we did, man. I mean, I mm -hmm. used to make lightsaber videos yeah. and stuff. It was great. Yeah. So my issue was, I think it was a couple things. For one, when Disney bought Star Wars, and we used to talk about this, it was very evident from the beginning that there was not a cohesive plan. They never seemed to buy it with an idea of how to use it. It was sort of like, well, we spent $4 billion on it. Let's shove out some movies as quickly as we can to recoup our costs and make money off of it. And they did. And, and I was very skeptical at the beginning because it seemed like it was all about slapping the Disney logo on it, throwing it out there, making fans shell out $16 to go see a movie. And that seemed the only motivation that they had behind expanding Star Wars beyond what we know. Two, I know that there's Star Wars fans who are skeptical of Lucas and they point to all the failures that he made. But I mean, let's not kid ourselves. This is the inventor of Star Wars. When push comes to shove, he has the final say. You know, he is yeah. the god of the Star Wars universe. Whether you agree with what he did or not, it was successful because if he didn't do a good job, there would 
wouldn't be this massive Star Wars fan culture and following. The fact that Disney seems so quick to dismiss him, and I've even heard stories that Lucas reached out to Disney and was like, well, hey, you know, I'd be interested in coming back and directing more films. And they were kind of like, eh, you have your money, like leave us be. I thought that that was a really strange approach because again, when we compare it to what's going on with Amazon and Rings of Power, if Tolkien was around, I think that he would have been the first guy they were like, hey, can you come over here and like settle some stuff for us? This is your baby. You know it better than anyone. And I was just shocked that Disney seemed to write George out of it so quickly. Well, the and big... you are right because these these guys are living, right? George Lucas, who made Star Wars, is here. I mean, you could go ask him questions or consult with him, right? George R.R. Martin with Game of Thrones is around. I mean, you can go and get this guy involved as long as, you know, they're, they're willing to participate. And then with like Harry Potter, there's J.K. Rowling out there who yeah. created this world. And, you know, these, it's not Tolkien where obviously Peter Jackson is kind of the go-to reference for Lord of the Rings filmmaking. But I mean, if you had Tolkien, I, I don't know why you wouldn't want his involvement. So yeah, it does seem a little odd that George Lucas would be kind of odd man out. But he did take $4 billion. So I mean, good, good for him. <laughs> good for him. I'm glad you made, you made your money, dude. I hope that someday, you know, everybody gets the opportunity to do that. I think the final thing for me though was, and again, it's such a stark contrast from when we look at Disney's acquisition of Marvel. The first thing they did is they're like, hey, everything that exists, which is this cohesive, complicated universe that fans had invested decades in following through comic books, novels, video games, television specials that had been buried for a decade. This was what the history of Star Wars was. And they're like, you know what? Thanks for coming out. We're starting all new. Like none of that stuff really matters. And I think that that is a colossal failure and just goes to show why fans are so unhappy now, because as we talked about in last week's episode with fans, it showed that they didn't, they weren't really interested in the fan experience and knowing the universe. They were interested in monetizing it by building the new Star Wars universe. But the bigger issue I have is, you know, you look at Marvel right? The playbook for the MCU has been what were the monumental moments in the history of, of Marvel and how can we bring those to a new generation of fans on the big screen? Right. We're going to change it slightly, but it's still these signature events. I don't know why Disney was so quick to write off the immense volume of content that exists in the MC or uh, in the Star Wars universe and just say, you know what, J.J. Abrams, you do your own thing. Ryan Johnson, you do your own thing. Favre, you do your thing. And no one was sitting there saying, hey, let's take that approach that Lucasfilm did and make sure that this is cohesive and consistent and the rules of this complicated Star Wars universe still apply. That's why I hate Disney, because they ruined something that I love. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I will only speak for myself, but I've been at the premiere of all the movies, and I have thoughts on them all, but that's not for this episode. I do actually, I really like The Mandalorian, and for anybody that was wondering, I watched the first three episodes of Andor, and I thought it was really Really well done. I will so not because it's going to suck. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for the future of that show and what they're going to do. So I'm definitely pumped. But that's that's for another time. I did want to throw out there, though, that something that, you know, might be fun later on this podcast is to maybe do some like live watch parties with CP as he has to watch like The Last Jedi or Rise of Skywalker. I'd be fascinated to get your opinion as it's unfolding. That'd yeah. be excellent. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. 
finally, something I wanted to bring up, and I've been I've been wanting to talk about this for a while because it was so exciting and I enjoyed it so much. Along with the purchase of Star Wars for $4 billion, Disney also purchased ILM. With that, they were able to release a new documentary series on Disney Plus called Light and Magic. It details the formation of ILM along with the original Star Wars film up through the 90s to Jurassic Park and T2. And basically the evolution of special effects from like straight, you know, the invention of motion control, matte paintings and the model shop all the way to digital filmmaking that we, you know, have have reached now. And I do got to give a big plug because this documentary is awesome. If you're into filmmaking and all the archival footage and, and discussions, they get everybody, even Spielberg's involved with the documentary to come in and kind of give their two cents on it. It's great because, you know, you, know, you always want to get these guys memories and opinions on what happened while they're still with us. So, but what's interesting to me is the series actually stops at about Jurassic. What I wanted to throw to you is actually a discussion a little bit around like, did special effects peak during like the range of this document? Because it's fascinating. Like you look at something like Jurassic Park and they just released a new Jurassic World. I want to say within the last year and Jurassic Park, the original from 1993 still looks better to this day than any of the new Jurassic worlds they've released. Am I wrong? No, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, it, it blows my mind. You know, what was it about 10 years ago when they re-released Jurassic Park in 3D? Holds up so well. And the limited use of CGI mixed with the practical effects they did, I still think it is the most realistic depiction of dinosaurs we've ever had and we will ever have until someone resurrects an actual dinosaur in like 200 years. Yeah, I mean, and we've had dinosaurs both in that franchise and in things like, you know, King Kong. It's it's weird to me that like Jurassic Park still is the absolute gold standard. And this is not only the first time this was ever attempted in like a, you know, feature length major motion picture, but it's also the best. And, you know, you combine that with T2's contribution. I think we've talked about Terminator a couple times now on this show. We've actually, I think we did an episode on T2 and then we did like a movie, re not remake time, kind of sequel for Terminator versus Terminator 2. Yeah. Which, yeah. God, they're, they're both amazing. Although, yeah, Terminator 1 does have some effects that didn't age as well. But damn it, if Terminator 2 doesn't look amazing to this day. Still, it's insane. I mean, you bring up a good point. How do I want to answer your initial question? I think what was so cool about special effects in the 80s and the 90s was that it was truly movie magic with the advent of cgi and the restrained use that they had because it was so expensive they were able to create things that had never been introduced on cinema before but they still had and were willing to use the whole array of tricks and tools that they had developed since the advent of cinema so it was yeah. such an amazing hybrid of new technology and old technology after doing the old technology for 40 years 50 years 60 years and sending over those same artists and letting them use their tactile artistic skill set through the advent of CGI, I just think it was done with a level of attention and detail that we don't really get now where it's kind of like, oh, fix it in post. They'll doll something up in CGI. If we have to, we'll outsource it to some CGI company in South Africa or India, India who can do it for half the cost and we're good to go. Yeah, it is kind of remarkable when you think that back in those days, if you did want effects like that, like there really was only one VFX shop you could go to and that was ILM. They were far and away, especially the documentary 
documentary shows us, and it is somewhat of a, a glowing documentary, right? It feels like it is them detailing their history and they get into some of the messiness that is the business of visual effects, but generally it's kind of like a glowing look at that era. But today, I mean, there's VFX houses everywhere. And even something that's popped up recently was, you know, a, a lot of VFX companies kind of talking about the demands and strain on them from companies like Marvel when, you know, ILM is an in-house VFX company for Disney. Yeah. They're outsourcing it to these other VFX companies. And, you know, obviously they're they're probably bidding a little low to get these jobs, but the demands of Marvel. And the problem I think is there's been complaints, fandom, oh my God, more fandom complaints that some of the VFX haven't necessarily been up to snuff. You know, there's people that would argue that if you go back and look at the original Iron Man in like 2007 or eight or whatever year that came out, some people are like, that looks better than some of the new stuff. Yeah. I think obviously almost everything now that is going to have like matte backgrounds and anything. I mean, almost all these shows are filmed against blue screen, green screen, and there's, there's just VFX. I don't want to say in every shot, but you know, in so many shots of, of what being done, it's, it's quite impressive considering I think in the early days they could actually list the number of shots that were like CG in Jurassic Park. They're like, it's 91, you know, I think it's like 23 it's like, in Terminator two or something. Yeah. Right. And now it's like, nah, it's the whole thing. It's yeah. the whole thing. Because it's crazy. Like, even you watch something like right now, it's airing brand new, like She-Hulk. But I'm guessing that even in her office, where the windows are, like, that's not a real office. You know, that's that's a set. Mm -hmm. And that background's digitally inserted. And there's VFX all over this thing. Yeah. No, I think you're, you're right. It's crazy. Again, what works so cool and what made the 80s movie so... I'm not actually making a point here, but I will. I promise. When you look at the evolution of Star Wars, when you look at Jurassic Park... When you look at Indiana Jones in there, you know, Terminator 2, there's there's probably like 20 movies that we look at as really pushing the boundaries of what's possible. You say E.T.? No, but I'll say E.T. Shout out Spielberg. You don't get that anymore <laughs> with movies. It, it's watered down. And I think the hybrid approach just made special effects different. I think one thing that we need to bring up is the fact that, again, in some ways, I think Star Wars actually kind of uh, diminished the legacy of George Lucas a little bit in the sense that I think it actually overshadowed what he did with Skywalker Sound and ILM and literally his ability to transform the industry of cinema. You are so, you're so right. Like if you don't like George Lucas, then you don't like movies. No, regardless of your thoughts of Star Wars and, and what he did with it, the man transformed the entire industry. I know when you, when you look at, like you said, there's Skywalker sound, him pushing to get surround sound in all of the theaters, there's ILM and, and really his ability to push the boundaries of special effects forward. There was edit droid and non linear editing that he was a part of. One of the divisions that he sold off to Steve Jobs was Pixar. Yeah. He just wasn't interested in making animated movies, but people were, and he's like, not. Nah. And I guess he gave them the name and was like, you know, do your thing. Like, I'm not going to be making animated movies, but go for it. It's actually crazy that all those coalesced again at Disney like 30 years later. But yeah, whatever. right. But it's, it, you're right. It is crazy the amount of influence George has had on the industry. And it's quite remarkable that his biggest contribution, Star Wars, is also one of the most beloved film franchises of all time. So not only was he pushing the technological boundaries, but he also created one of the most beloved stories of all time. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. I think it's just sad in the sense that I don't think we'll ever have that renaissance of special effects that we did during the, the decade and a half there, two decades, kind of late 70s through the early 90s. In my opinion, I think they Jurassic Park is probably the peak of, of special effects because they used everything in that movie. And the only exception I will make is I think the last great, truly great special
special effects film. Oh, I know where you're going. Lord of the Rings. Boom. You got it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lord of the Rings is gorgeous. And they are using every trick in the book. Force perspective. They're building multiple sets. Obviously, they're pushing the boundaries, I think, at that time with Gollum as a digital character actor and yep. what they brought to life there. And then even the, uh, the armies, you know, the closest we had seen to armies of that scale was mostly Star Wars prequel trilogy. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of that was droids and very mm -hmm. mechanical things where here they were doing orcs and urukai. It was on this like massive grand scale, but even the scale models, mm -hmm. you know, they built Isengard, they built a Rivendell model. That's how they, the map paintings, a lot of them were mm -hmm. actually still, they were paintings, you know, at that time versus now you do that all digitally. Just so impressive. I mean, Lord of the Rings is gorgeous. Also amazing. Well, and I think that's part of the reason why Lord of the Rings fans look at The Hobbit and it feels a little bit lackluster because the attention done to the visuals in Lord of the Rings still hold up beautifully. And again, it's the last movie I can think of that's truly taking that hybrid approach between what's everything that we've learned? How can we push the boundaries of digital cinema? By the time we get to The Hobbit, it's almost like Peter Jackson's like, you know, uh, the digital stuff was easier, is quicker. We have the money. Let's just do it that way. You and know, one of the things bring about, the same. One of the things with The Hobbit that really kind of threw me off was I think they filmed it at like 60 frames per second or something. Yeah. And if you watch it on a TV that can actually support that, in my opinion, it was a little jarring. I don't know what it is about 24 and I should know because it was taught in film school while I was there. Off the top of my head, I don't remember what it is specifically about 24 frames per second, but it just works. I don't know. It looks natural. That's why they decided on 24. Yeah, it just, it, it works perfectly. And, and especially when you amp that up to 60, it had kind of a real, almost like it felt too real. Like yeah. you're like, nah, I don't know. This looks yeah. like I'm just peering into the set. Don't like it. Yeah. And I don't know why. And even though it's interesting because I'm always down to see people push the boundaries, I think that's actually one example of it was like, you know, uh, maybe not. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we won't go that far. Yeah. I thought if I remember correctly, I thought I read that they ended up going through for the theatrical release and actually removing every other frame of the film to oh, reduce it down to 30 because they're like, yeah, it's just too much information, too huh. much visual information for someone to see. Yeah. The ones that stand out to me, it's obviously, Jurassic Park is monumental in both effects. I think it became the highest grossing movie of all time and just true spectacle. But Lord of the Rings was amazing. And then the other one that I did want to acknowledge that was still pushing boundaries was Avatar. So and we are getting a new Avatar. Mm. So we got we got a new Jurassic World. We're getting avatar there's you know still star wars and now we got rings of power i mean it's all it's all crazy and yet somehow the older ones seem to have done it better with avatar that is honestly the one movie i saw in 3d that was it blew me away now a I'll lot of them you, yeah, it felt gimmicky that. it just felt like it was like a 3d conversion and that right instead of things like coming out and and really being 3d it felt more like they, it just added like a layer of depth for the sake of the movie i'm not 100 sure how this actually makes it any better it was interesting that you had mentioned to me you went to go see jaws in 3d and you felt that depth actually work out on the ocean so that was interesting oh yeah i did think so we talked about that in the podcast so that was fascinating yeah generally those are the movies that i think really stand out for effects so while we're on it i just really quick wanted to fanboy out a little bit because I did watch this documentary on ILM. When you go look at how they made the original Star Wars, it is amazing. Star Wars is just, I mean, in my opinion, it's the best movie ever. But I love the old effects. I think it looks incredible. Some of the stories were actually true, like in Empire Strikes Back, like in the asteroid field, like some of the asteroids were actually potatoes. Yeah. Because you're like, they're just so far off in the distance. But learning how they actually did this, it was, it was cool because 
to me, ILM is industrial light and magic. And it really is like be magic. Like yeah. I saw one, I think they did an effect in like poltergeist. The house collapses in on itself. Oh and yeah. They actually built a house out of balsa wood and then set it up upside down on like a platform. They had a vac and it sucked the house through the platform and they had rifles down there and they were shooting the house to like blow it up. So it would, it would they literally like did it. That's it was insane. insane. That's insane, dude. No, it was crazy. And so like, I don't know, it was so much fun to see how they brought these effects to life. And and then they showed how it actually looked in the movie and it looks amazing. Like (laughs) it looks so good. I don't know. It was was fun to watch that documentary. If you're interested, I'm sure a lot of you are. We got a lot of filmmakers listening in addition to just movie fans. So if you are interested in, you know, something you can put on and truly enjoy, Light and Magic on Disney Plus was awesome. I started started checking it out at your recommendation, but I'm really excited to finish it because I think it looks amazing. And I mean, it's what we love. So I have a question for you though yes obviously we are both of the mind that those 80s 90s movies are the best that there is what what do you think is going to happen if we asked young kids now or if we tell our kids do you think they're going to look at those movies and say you know do you think growing up in the digital generation they just they actually think that they're (laughs) old movies like when we go watch something from the 40s or whatever i honestly do i believe that with the way special effects are done today and and all the new movies and stuff they will look at star wars and think that looks old those look like models though so, you know it doesn't quite hold up you know and and like you said it's like going back and watching maybe like old james bond you know here's a series that has actually evolved with the time yeah. you know you go back and watch old james bond to us we're like damn that does not look great it doesn't have the same action the same pacing obviously i think it's improved over time although we did we also did a james bond episode back there somewhere so you can go check that out but i do i think kids will look at things like Ghostbusters where we have kind of that nostalgia for those old effects because not only were they groundbreaking at the time but we love those films I don't know that they're going to have the same love for you know what we grew up and that's you know part of I guess just getting older you know hopefully these new kids start like you said hopefully there'll be a renaissance you know for special effects that'd be fun I would love to see it I'd love to see people pushing boundaries again and taking us on to places we never thought we'd go that'd be dope would be very dope so I want to see more melted faces like Raiders of lost art yeah it's such a lost art it's getting to the point too where being almost 30 years 40 years removed from some of those movies you even wonder how there's the people in hollywood who still actually have the know-how how to do those things yeah you know? right or they're either retired or you know you gotta you gotta mind these guys like can we just give a huge shout out to all the model makers and stop animation professionals that brought those effects that we love to life because damn yeah it was amazing like no, it's, even it's insane they were showing clips from like dragon slayer i guess i I think it was Phil Tippett was doing the stop motion for the dragon. And like, it's incredible. I, I don't know how long and painstaking that must be to do. And I've done like my fair share of experimenting and I got like four seconds you know, it reminds me of that scene from like Parks and Recreation when Ben's on his like sabbatical and he, he makes his uh his stop motion, his claymation. Yeah. And he, he plays it and it's like four seconds. And he's like, wait, <laughs> it's supposed to be longer. He's like, how is it not longer? <laughs> because stop motion takes so long and you see it done in, in so many great things, you know, particularly I think, you know, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back is, you know, the Hoth scene is probably one of my favorite of all time, but it looks so good. My appreciation for that is so high. So, you know, huge shout out to all you professionals out there that bring those things to life that is truly amazing but before we go one last thing i just wanted to say this while we're on the topic of star wars because i really did find the documentary to be absolutely fascinating making like the 
motion control, the, the Dykstra flex and all that stuff. It was just fascinating how all of that works. I mean, now it's just done digitally, but they actually built a camera that you could make multiple passes and it was identical. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. And again, the legacy of George Lucas is so much more than I think we ever think it is. I got one more thing and this yeah. is actually pretty cool. I went to uh, downtown Disney here in LA at Disneyland and they have a they have a Star Wars Trader Outpost. Yeah. It's a store that plays the original score of Star Wars. And I was like, I wish every time I went to get groceries, whatever, <laughs> I wish a grocery store was just playing Star Wars music. It was amazing. I'm humming along. I'm excited when they play the next one. I was like, God, if, if there was a grocery store that got like movie themes and just played movie themes, that's where I'd shop. You'd win, <laughs> you'd, you'd win me over. Noted. All right. Well, that does it for our discussion today. Hope everybody enjoyed the topics. And if you have, obviously, any thoughts, comments, reviews, anything that you guys would like forward to us, be sure to visit filmmakerscompass.com where we have all our links to our social media as well as where the podcast can be found both on Apple Podcasts, on Google, and all major podcast networks. So you can follow the show at Film Comp Podcast. And like I said, those links are there. You can follow me at Big Kid D-Man. And you can follow me at NDCal5. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Hope you guys enjoyed the show and keep watching movies. We'll be back next week.